Hello and welcome to episode two of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Today we're very fortunate to have David Flat speaking to us on a topic with a very long name, but it's going to be excellent. It's Many Tribes, One King, A Call for Biblical Unity in an Age of Tribal Individualism. David. Okay, so obviously it's the first time I've ever talked when there's like somebody listening. Um, so a little, little different with the podcast, but hopefully it'll go okay and everybody will land and we'll learn something. So um, I want to take just a second to make a few kind of comments. First is this is a big week in uh, medical education. So this is the week that everybody turns over. So July 1st is the start of the medical academic calendar. So if you get sick this weekend, do not go to academic hospital because all the interns were med students Friday. <laughs> They're doctors today or yesterday. So all the fellows were residents Friday, the fellows uh, today. So everybody's brand new. It's kind of a weird, anxious time uh, in my world. Second thing I'd say is happy fourth. Um, I hope that you are happy and proud to be an American and enjoying uh, the good things about our country. Our country's obviously not perfect. There's things about our past and present that I wish were different and hope to be different in the future. Uh, but I think it is helpful to maybe stop on the fourth and think, man, on July 4, 1776, started signing this document called the Declaration of Independence, finished signing it a few days later, and uh, the result of that has been really remarkable. We changed the idea of rights being located in the collective. The king would collectivize and give a group of people rights. We said, no, rights exist in the individual, and each individual is given rights, as Jefferson said, by their creator, and so our creator gives us rights, and the government exists to protect those rights. And the result has been not perfection, um, not even starting with perfection, some huge problems in the history of America, but uh, millions of people are free, billions of people are no longer in abject poverty because of the expansion of freedom that started then. So, not perfect, but I hope that you enjoy your fourth and uh, maybe take a minute to read the Declaration of Independence on Tuesday and uh, be thankful for our country. So, with that uh, being said, this morning I want to talk about something not really related uh, to July 4th, but maybe there are some connections that we'll try to draw between the two. So, my title is Many Tribes, One King. And so, I want to talk about biblical unity this morning and the idea beginning with there's a lot of things that can and do separate us. That are, um, some are healthy, some are what our culture says should separate and divide us. So we are a, a tribal people. I think by nature the animal part of humanity is very tribal. We have instincts to section off into different groups. What I want to do this morning is have a call for biblical unity. So in the midst of what our instincts and culture says we should divide and be separate and be different, the Bible has a different story and a different calling. So I think we live in a unique age of what um, I'm going to term... Um, tribal individualism, and I'll uh, define that term in a second, but we live in a, an era of that, and in the midst of that culture, I want to call us uh, to biblical unity. Or rather, I don't want to call us, I want to let the Bible call us to biblical unity. Who cares what I think, right? Okay, so where we are, I'm going to argue that we live in an era, uh, this is a term I made up, so it may be ridiculous, but I'm going to try to define it and see what you guys think, but I'm going to argue that we live in tr an era of tribal individualism. So let's start by talking about individualism. So um, it's kind of appropriate that this is July 4th weekend because the idea of individualism can both be healthy and harmful. But um, part of the American culture is a culture of individualism that's been defined in different ways through the history of our country. Historically, we think of American individualism as the idea that Jefferson coined that we're endowed with our creator. Individuals are given rights. 
life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? And so with those rights, government is established to protect those rights. But as we're given rights, we have responsibilities, right? So this is American individualism, sometimes t talk called rugged individualism. The idea that you're given rights, but with those rights come responsibility to care for yourself, your family, your community, ultimately your country and even the world, right? So with these great rights come responsibilities. That would be American individualism, which is not a perfect way to view the world. There's some problems with it. Um, historically, it's been tied with some not perfect movements, but I think it generally is a healthy way to say, you need to be responsible for yourself and your family, and you need to take the privileges you've been given as an American and extend those to others. Well, probably in about, uh, maybe mid-20th century, 1940s, 1950s, this idea of individualism began to change a little bit. Um, social philosophers, including uh, David Wells, who's a Canadian thinker, uh, calls this expressive individualism. So I want to read this quote and then maybe talk about it. I think most of you will agree that this is in fact true. So imagine the idea of kind of rugged American individualism, the idea that we're given rights and that with those rights come responsibility to care for ourselves and others. Contrast that with this, which I would say uh, better characterizes uh, modern individualism. So expressive individualism then is driven by a deep sense of entitlement to being left alone, to live in a way that is emancipated from the demands and expectations of others, to being able to fashion its own life in the way it wants to, to being able to develop its own values and beliefs in its own way, to resist all authority, to be free in these ways many have come to think is indispensable to being a true individual. Right, so I just want to focus on a, a couple of, of points that Wells makes here. He says that expressive individualism is the view that we are entitled to being left alone. So we have the right to be left alone. We're emancipated or free. So like the Emancipation Proclamation, the Proclamation of Freedom, the Emancipation. Hey, come on in, guys. Great. The Emancipation Proclamation is the idea that we're free, so we're emancipated from the demands and expectations of others, and that we're able to develop our own values and beliefs in our own way to resist all authority. So expressive individualism, follow me here, I know this is kind of in the weeds, but expressive individualism is the idea that the greatest right, the greatest moral thing you can accomplish is to be true to yourself, right? To express yourself as you see fit. So whether that be from a behavior perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a political and ideological perspective, the great thing that you do as an individual is be who you feel like you were made to be. And who decides that? You do. Right? So as opposed to individualism conferring rights on you, expressive individualism, our modern thought, is that you are the arbiter of moral authority and self-expression. Right? And that's, I think that's self-evidently true, that that is how our culture sees morality. In fact, you get in a lot of trouble if you publicly reject this kind of view. Right? If you say something like, you're not free to express yourself the way that you would best like to express yourself because you have responsibilities imposed on you by family, religion, church, political institutions. That's a real quick way to offend a lot of people, right? And the reason that it's so offensive is because this is so ingrained in the way that 2017 Americans see the world. I would say this is the central organizing premise of the way that people, especially in our generation, see the world. We are expressive individualists. And the highest um, moral achievement is to express yourself as you truly want to express yourself and as you see yourself. So that's one trend. Trend um, from rugged individualism to expressive individualism that's occurring. The second trend 
is tribalism. And so we could do this, uh, look at this in a bunch of different ways. Uh, maybe this was a bad choice, but I want to try to look at it politically because that's always so calm and not going to raise any tensions. Uh, but so well, we could do this not just with politics, but with any, any nature of ideological thought processes. Uh, but we'll talk about politics first, and I think you'll understand what I'm, where I'm coming from. So on the top, we, this is what Republicans and Democrats say about each other. Okay? On the top is what Republicans say about Democrats. On the bottom is what Democrats say about Republicans. Okay? On the left are positive statements. On the right, I'm sorry, on the left are negative statements. On the right are positive statements. Okay? So I'm just going to read a couple of these off. You can probably see them from where you're sitting. But, so Republicans say that 52% of Democrats are closed-minded, 47% are immoral, 46% are lazy. Republicans only say that 3% of Democrats are intelligent, <laughs> only 2% are honest, only 3% are hardworking. Okay? And just in case you only think it's the you know, judgmental Republicans that think this, Democrats would say 70% of Democrats say that Republicans are closed-minded. 70%. 42% would say dishonest, 35% immoral. Only 9% of Democrats would say that Republicans are moral, 7% intelligent, only 9% hardworking. So, it's two, however you want to split it, but about half the country thinks the other half of the country is awful people. And that half of the country thinks the other half of the country is awful people, right? And just in case you think, well, of course they think that. They're political opponents. It's always been this way. Well, it's not true. So the Pew Research Center in 2016, they've been asking these questions since 1994, and here's the trends. So 1994, 21% of Republicans had a very unfavorable view of Democrats. Does that follow? So in 2016, 58% of Republicans had a very unfavorable view of Democrats. So it's almost triple. We've almost tripled our view uh, very unfavorable Republican towards Democrats. When you look at Democrats, 17% have a very unfavorable view of Republicans. In 2016, it's 55%. Of, this was before the election, you know, whatever that means. So um, this, that is triple. It's more than tripled. So the point is, our political discourse is much more tribal and separate than it was just in 1994. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, right? Um, and so, but that's not just with politics. You can look at, um, I would argue you could do the same. If we had time, we could break it down based on geography, ethnicity, religious views, okay? In a lot of ways, we're more tribal and separate based on a lot of self-identifying features that we would claim to be our identity. And so what happens is we've com combined the expressive individualism, the right that I have to express myself in the way that I feel the most comfortable, the most true to myself, that's determined not by any outside forces but by me. We've combined that with this trend towards tribalism, this idea to associate with people who are only like me and view the others as enemy. And I would, I'd say I think these two things combined um, to form what we'll call tribal individualism. So Jonathan Haidt, um, some of you guys may know who he is. He uh, is a psychology professor at New York University. He wrote an article in um, The Atlantic in the early spring, most read article ever online uh, in The Atlantic. Really kind of profound thinker. He's a, he's a political liberal and an atheist, um, so I, I disagree with him on some really important questions, but I think he is an, an open-minded thinker that's helpful on some of these questions. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. It says why, do good, why good people are divided by politics and religion, kind of explaining thought patterns and why, why we land where we land. 
He also wrote, the, the, so the article is called The Coddling of the American Mind. So I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't read it, but it's in the Atlantic. It's the idea of how um, we kind of collapse into groupthink and shelter ourselves from ideas that are un- uncomfortable to us. The point is, he's a, a thinker that maybe disagrees with me on almost everything, uh, but, but also sees this tendency in American life to separate based on our individual uh, personal preferences and to group with people who are only like us and view people who disagree with us as the enemy. So I, I think that this would land us, I'll skip that, this would land us at something called tribal individualism. So this is a marriage of two ideas. The first idea is the expression of self over cultural expectations and institutional authority is essential for true life. So some of this is helpful, right? If you want to rebel against some parts of society or culture or authority, that's not always negative. Authority has been wrong many times in the past. Uh, But just like anything, it can certainly be taken too far. And So if you always begin with a mistrust of authority, I think that lands you in a scary place, especially when you combine it with a rising tribal association that... um, that disconnects intersectional, ethnic, national, and religious groups from the interest or concerns of broader society. So if we form in individual groups who find their identity and their purpose in benefiting their own group and view every, every other group as the enemy, then I think we're in trouble. So that's a lot to say that I think we're at a particular time in our cultural history, American cultural history, where we're fairly prosperous comparatively to other times in world history we're fairly safe a lot of things in america despite what fox news and cnn would say are are pretty good statistically compared to other generations and other times but for some kind of dynamic and cultural reasons we really don't like each other okay we're not getting along um my guess would be even people in this room, you probably don't spend a lot of time with large groups of people who voted differently than you, who look differently than you, have dramatically different educational levels than you have. Um, we're tribal creatures and we're living in a tribal moment. And I think that's pushed forward by this uh, expressive individualism that's also contained in the moment. So how do we make sense of all that as the church a group that's supposed to oppose this exact kind of thinking, right? So we would oppose, on Christian grounds, both radical individualism, the idea that I would define morality for myself, right? That I don't have any commitments to broader society or culture or institutions. That's definitely opposed to biblical thought. And I would also oppose the tribalism, that somehow my primary identity is male, white, what occupation I have, that, that that's um, who I am. I would oppose that too. So how do we stand as opposition to the great cultural narratives that we're living within? So I think at phrases, can't we all just get along? Everybody's mad at each other, screaming at each other, um, not going to Thanksgiving dinner. I'm sure you guys read like a bunch of articles around Thanksgiving. Everyone's like furious about the election, won't even like eat turkey with somebody in your family who's voting differently than you. Really, tensions are high. Why can't we all just get along? So I want to pause just for a second before I kind of try to answer that question and I'm sure an incomplete and uh, unsatisfactory way, at least from a complete standpoint. But I want to talk about the importance and limits of unity from a Christian perspective. Because as soon as we start talking about Christian unity, we say, well, a lot of Christians disagree on a lot of things. And some of them are really important things. And some of them are not important things, but we make a big deal about them. So how do we kind of process all that? So three levels of doctrine I want to talk. Um, 
this is from David Platt, who's a, a, obviously a preacher that I think a lot of, quote a lot. Um, but he, here's how he laid it out, and I think this is helpful, okay? So three levels of doctrine, they're creatively named first degree, second degree, third degree. Um, but we'll put them on the PowerPoint because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. So first degree doctrine. So this is, these would be doctrines where unity and disunity is helpful. Okay. Really, the point of this series, false doctrines, has been there is a there is a place for disunity in the church, and it's helpful. There's some things that we all need to agree on in order to be Christians, and so I would call these first degree doctrines. These are things like the existence of God, the divinity of Jesus, Jesus' sacrificial atonement for our sins, our nature as sinners, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' second coming, and His coming kingdom. So, if you don't agree on those things, you're not a Christian. Right? And so it's healthy that we unite. So the idea of Christian unity isn't we're trying to form a country club where if you look the right way and follow the right kind of cultural norms and dress the right way, you're in. Right? That's not, it's not like you pay the dues and you show up and you're a member. No, to be a Christian does mean certain things. These are first-degree doctrines that we all need to unite around. But that's not all there is to Christian doctrine. There's also second-degree doctrines. So these would be doctrines that are important that I hope you have convictions on, that I think it's healthy and appropriate to say this Christian brother that I have thinks differently and I think he's wrong and I think differently than him and he thinks I'm wrong, but we love each other and we can still be connected. I think often second-degree doctrines you're going to see local churches be separate on, right? So there's going to be churches in Memphis that have different views on the frequency of the Lord's Supper, uh, the meaning and modes of baptism, the uh, church governing structure, how that's all set up. We're going to disagree on some important questions, questions that I have convictions on, questions that I could not go to a church that disagreed with me on, right? They're, they're second-degree doctrines that have that much importance in my life, but that we're not disfellowshipping, kicking people out of Christianity because they don't subscribe to those. So we're going to call those second-degree doctrines. And then we have third-degree doctrines. These would be doctrines that Christians living in the same local congregation, underneath the same congregational authority, worshiping and sharing life together would disagree on. And I think this list is humongous. So what's your view about God's providence and election? What's your view on like whatever this millennia thing is in Revelation? Like how, where do you come down on that? Lots of questions. How do you exactly understand the inspiration of Scripture? I mean, lots of questions. I think really there needs to be Christian liberty, Christian freedom to come down on a bunch of different places and still be together in the same family. So why do we take so much time to kind of delineate these three things? Well, because I think it's important that we understand that every doctrine and every thought is not equal in importance, right? And so what we can do is we can centralize and, and commit to unity on the first and most of the second degree doctrines, right? And then allow Christian freedom below that. And that we understand that just because somebody disagrees with you on a conviction you have doesn't mean that you need to kick them out of Christianity, right? We can have fellowship and friendship with people even who we have strong disagreements with. So, with that understanding of kind of how Christians can approach the idea of unity, I want to make the point that unity is not a secondary thought in Christian teaching. So, in some ways, you could say that the central organizing principle behind the writings of Paul and the actions of the early church was to create and sustain unity around first-degree principles. 
That, that's what Paul wrote about. There's not a letter he wrote where he doesn't mention unity somewhere in the letter. That's how the church behaved in Acts. They were willing to submit and sacrifice and compromise on all sorts of issues. Frankly, issues that I don't think we would compromise on today. Issues about closely held beliefs about ethnic identity and religious practices of the past and present. They gave all that up in order to stay unified around first degree principles. And so, in some ways, just to kind of proof text, although we talk about that's not the best way to do scripture interpretation in here. I want to just kind of walk through several verses in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, just kind of lay this out. So uh, I think it'd be awesome if somebody, some people would kind of help me read here. So I'll click on the verse, and if somebody wants to just uh, read and just uh, pipe up, that'd be great. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Okay, so we keep going on and on and on. Um, the point I wanted to make, though, is that the Bible talks a lot about unity. And I think Christians probably aren't very good at it sometimes. Uh, it's been said, take like just one example of the, uh, the idea of the thousand-year millennia. So it's a thousand years of peace that Christians love to argue about. I think there's some truth about that, right? We pick these kind of esoteric, secondary, third-degree doctrines and really get upset and frustrate each other about them. I don't want you to hear me saying this morning that I don't think conviction is important. In fact, I, I do. It's one of the reasons I felt like this series was so important. We could walk through different false doctrines that the church is really prey to in, uh, in our postmodern culture. But in the middle of all of that, in the middle of thinking about truth, in the middle of thinking about uh, what it means to be a Christian, we can't neglect this central theme that's all through Scripture unity. So if you want to say I'm a Bible-believing Christian, I'll follow the Bible wherever it, whatever it teaches, wherever it goes, one of the places it goes is calls you to sacrifice your preferences, calls me to sacrifice the way that I would rather do church and share life together for the purpose of shared unity. Okay. So what I want to do now is I want to lay out five principles of biblical unity and I'll look at five texts that kind of back that up. And then I want to land talking about where this whole thing's going. If we, if I'm right that we live in a really fractured, disunified, 
culture for a lot of reasons, some good and some not good, um, then, then where does that lead us as Christians trying to be a light in that culture? What I would suggest is I think ideologically, theologically, and just practically, the church, if we're willing to embrace a, a calling and a challenge uncomfortable to us, is uniquely positioned to be a light and a source of unity in a culture that's disintegrating in terms of cohesiveness. So let's look at these five principles and then we'll kind of end uh, with an important text. So the first principle, we've kind of already been around this, so we won't spend as much time on this, but be committed to truth. Right? So I just want to say again, the church is not a country club. Right? The church is not a place uh, to unite around uniting. Right? So our uniting principle isn't that we want to unite and be together. Right? Our, our uniting principle is not um, some abstract idea uh, that doesn't, doesn't have teeth or we don't come together because we want to be have a bunch of people in a room that all dress the same way or look the same way. Right? We're committed to a truth that stands above us the existence of God, the divinity of His Son, the love of God, not just for us, but for all people and His sacrifice for them. So we're committed to those truths, whether or not the rest of the world believes them. We, we're willing to unite around first-degree principles. So I think Paul lays out this idea in 1 Corinthians 1 pretty well, or I guess very well, much better than, than I can. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So, of course, this is a progressive idea, right? We don't all agree on everything, maybe ever, but we're working towards the idea of agreement. So I think it's important to say, when Paul calls for unity, he doesn't just call for unity in the abstract. He calls for unity around ideas and principles that matter. So we want to be a people that are committed to truth. And as we approach truth together, if we believe... You know, we disagree with the postmodernists that says that there's no such thing as truth. Right? We think there is truth. And so as we together approach truth, we become more unified. Right? We're all going to the same place in our thought and our spiritual life. So as we get closer to truth, we get closer to each other. So if we want to be unified, first principle is you've got to be unified around truth. Second principle, do not assume evilness or ignorance of your opponents. So if you watch... Um, Fox News or CNN or NBC, you go home and watch the Sunday shows, this will be the central theme of every debate, right? So they'll start talking, right? You'll have, you know, people dress nice in suits or, you know, um, whatever it is that they're dressing to look nice, and they'll be debating some idea. Pretty quickly, it'll become apparent that they disagree on the idea, and then both sides will infer that the other side is either stupid or evil, right? And, and then the argument will just deteriorate. You, you, will you hate children? Will you hate, you know, people of this color? Or you want to kill grandmother? Or you're just too dumb to understand, right? And it, so this is, this is the way that we argue politically. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the way we argue theologically, right? If you were just smart enough to, to, to read this text I'm reading the way I'm reading it, then we all agree. Or um, if you weren't so evil that you want to get it your way and, and you're so selfish, then we, then we could find unity. So I want to suggest, this is hard, right? Because our, our natural human tribal instincts tend to place our um, political, social, or theological opponents in one of these safe boxes because it's much easier, right? If I can say you're evil, if I can say you're stupid, then I don't have to take the time to understand what you're saying and to, to, to build a relationship with you and to love you and to persuade you. I also say that it should go without saying this is a very unpersuasive argument, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you call me stupid, you know, it's going to be really hard for me to be persuaded about anything you believe. So if we believe in absolute truth, right, I'm convicted that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again, conquering death and sin for every person on the planet. If I believe that's true and I want to persuade people who disagree with me that that's true, then I don't need to approach people who disagree with me based on the assumption that they're ignorant or stupid. I need to learn to engage them in a level of love and compassion. So um, I think that's important. Can I, can I say something about that? Yeah. I feel like um, if I look back at like me 15 years ago and I were having a discussion with me, I would probably put me in one of those boxes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what that does is you, you push people to stay where they are rather than allowing people to continue on a journey. Because I mean, that's what you are. Like you're, you're progressively learning more as you, as you come closer mm-hmm. to God and closer to truth. And so, like, had somebody done that to me and pushed me back into this box, I would have stayed there. Yeah. And, and instead of, like, instead of being able to grow. You would have kind of stayed in your corner fighting. That's right. Instead of being invited into a deeper discussion. That's right. Because if somebody challenges you a lot of times, like, you, you kind of double down, you know. Right. You don't, you don't want to move. So. Yeah, if somebody calls you evil, that's an argument ender, right? That's not a, an introduction to, like, open dialogue and conversation. Okay, so Paul says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambitious or, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So when, you're, when we're arguing with each other, we want to count the other person that we're talk, talking with as more significant than ourselves. Okay, state your opponent's position in a way he or she would agree with. So I think this is actually like awesome advice for any conflict, especially like marriage. If you're like you're in a, a thing with marriage, like arguments can get escalated quickly if you don't do this, right? So like, where do you want to go eat? Well, I want to go eat at O'Charlie's. So you're saying you want to go eat at the one place I don't like and you don't care about my feelings? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Actually, you're the one that doesn't care about my feelings. Well, I don't care about you anyways. You're like, oh my goodness, what just happened, right? So what you, what you want to do when you're conversing with somebody you disagree with is say back to them what it is that you think they're saying or what you think they believe. This, again, is hard, right? It would be much easier to create some straw man uh, some weak, to weaken uh, the other person's argument to make it sound evil or stupid, right? So if you can't persuade yourself that the, who you're talking to is evil or stupid, maybe you can make their argument sound evil or stupid. So I think, uh, I think this is an important uh, point in conversation. You want to say back to the person you're talking to what it is they're saying in a way that the person you're talking to would say, Yes, that's right. That's what I, that, that is what I mean. And then have a discussion about that, right? So have a discussion about actually the best point, the best way to state your, uh, I don't like the word opponent, but the person you're talking with, their perspective, right? I think that's really important. So Paul would say, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So if you're in a conversation with somebody you disagree with, I think if you're sympathetic, you're loving, you're compassionate, you're humble, you're really going to be trying to listen and understand what it is they're saying and not mischaracterizing it to say something different. Okay, and uh, so we got two more. I think these are, um, well, this is the hardest one and the next one's the most important. So submit to the weaker brother. So let's go straight to the text on this just to make this point. So 1 Corinthians 8, so I'll read it and then we'll kind of talk about the context. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So, the context here is Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. 
Okay, and there's converts in the Corinthian church that were former polytheists that worshipped, uh, practicing polytheists, I'd say. They worshipped multiple gods and would sacrifice their food to these gods, right? And then, of course, there are Jewish Christians in the Corinthian church who don't really have an idea of polytheism or sacrificing to multiple gods. And so then, in the middle of this, you have this food sold in the marketplace that was sacrificed to these polytheistic gods, okay? So the tension is the former polytheists th find it immoral, spiritually objection objectionable, and sinful to eat the meat that was sacrificed in the polytheist temples. Everybody follow? So former polytheists find it immoral to eat food that was sacrificed to these multiple gods. And the Jewish Christians don't find anything wrong with eating food that was pretend sacrificed to pretend gods in their mind. I just think like it, it doesn't matter, sold at a discounted price, like that's strategic, let's just buy that food and, uh, and eat it. That'd be great. And so there's this tension in the church. So what should we do? We got, I don't know, I don't know what the percentage is, but let's say half the church uh, thinks that eating this meat is sinful. Half the church thinks it's wrong to eat the meat. So how do you square that all out? So Paul does something kind of interesting. First, he's, he answers the question, who's right? So the right answer is there's nothing wrong with the meat, right? It's, it's a pretend God. It's a pretend sacrifice. You are free to eat the meat, okay? The second thing he says is that the stronger brother... The, the brothers and sisters in the church who understand that it's okay to eat the meat should yield their preference to the weaker brothers and sisters because eating the meat to them is sinful, right? So that's crazy, right? That's, that is not the way that any institution in the world operates, including almost always the church, right? This idea that, that the, the spiritually or the intellectually or the culturally strong would say, well, we know we're right, but in order to preserve unity, we're going to yield to, the pre to, to us its preferences, but it's to the conscience of the weaker brothers and sisters in the church. So obviously this principle could be abused, right? There, there are some issues that we would need to kind of process out with wisdom and, and discernment and, and, and teaching, right? If, if, um, I don't think I'd offend anybody in here, but like if you thought... You know, if you thought there should never be a kitchen in the church, you know, which was a, a tensive thing in our movement before, I think there would be some opportunity to maybe teach and talk through that, and hopefully we could land at a greater place of unity and build a kitchen. But I think Paul would say if it came down to it and half the church was not relenting on a kitchen in the church being sinful, and we don't think not having a kitchen in the church is sinful, then we ought to submit to our weaker brothers and their weaker desires. So I don't know exactly how that plays out um, with a bunch of other issues that we may or may not um, have to deal with. But I, I think there's a principle there that um, if you've got it all figured out, you need to be um, submissive and sacrificial to the, the thoughts of the, the weaker theological brother. So I also say this is really hard. It's almost never done because it's so hard. Okay, and then here's the fifth principle, and this is the most important principle. This is the idea of the motivation for unity so that the world may know. So this text is... Um, a really important text. In fact, I, you wouldn't be sitting in this room right now if Jesus had never prayed this prayer and John had never written it down. Because this text was one of the things that motivated and launched the Restoration Movement, which you know now, um, hundreds of years later, is is the Church of Christ is a part of, has roots in, and, and now we're sitting here in this church. So let, let's talk about the text, and then we'll, we'll talk about the ideas. So Jesus is praying right before um, he's arrested, taken to be crucified, and he says... I do not ask for these only, meaning his 12 disciples, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for the people who will believe in Jesus based on the testimony of the apostles. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So here's what's weird. Why does Jesus pray that the church would be unified? He prays that the church would be unified so that the world may believe that God sent him. So that the world may know that you sent me. So, like, I, I love math. I think it's like 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is this, so that. This doesn't make any sense, right? So we want to be unified so that the world will believe in Jesus. Right? So, if, if, I, like if, if David's coming up with a strategy, we need to get like a, a great place to meet. We need to get the great great people. We need to be able to articulate the gospel message. We need to have good programs that we want to come and be a part of. We need to have like an evangelical mission to go and reach people strategically. And I'm still for all that, but I think it's interesting. Jesus' plan for reaching people, at least in this context, was that his church, his people, his followers would be unified. So this is why in the restoration movement, this was the idea of let's pull out of denominational Christianity, let's form non-denominational Christianity, and let's be all unified. And if we're all unified, then the world will look to us and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, whether or not that was the right way to do it or, or whatever, that's maybe a conversation for another time. But I think it's an interesting point that people who take the Bible seriously should take unity seriously because Jesus says if we're unified, people will look at that unity, glorify the Father, and believe in Jesus. So you want people to believe in Jesus? You need to love your brothers and sisters. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. It also doesn't make a lot of sense where this story is heading. right? So I think you could make a really good argument, um, and I've tried to do this morning, that we're at a unique time of um, cultural division in American history. Things do not see. I can't think of a single cultural trend, popular culture, religious, the sports world, the political world, anything that seems to be drawing people together more than it's pushing people apart. I think the smart prognosticators who look at our culture would say we're becoming increasingly divided. Um, you hear like people writing smart columns about an American divorce or a silent civil war. I think some conversations about that um, is appropriate or understandable looking at the moment. But what I would say is a lot of things that are true don't make sense. In fact, I would argue that God's whole plan for the universe doesn't make sense. Right? It doesn't make sense to pick a group of tribal slaves in Egypt and say, I'm going to bless the world through those people, pull them out of slavery, and then when they're taken into captivity, refuse to submit to the most powerful nation in the history of the world at that point, Babylon, and say, no, you remain my people. You continue to follow my laws. Then be freed from that captivity. Go back to the vacant desert where there's no water, no food. That doesn't make any sense to move back there. Move back there and start a new kingdom again. And then to choose a teenage virgin to bring the Savior of the world into the world. And then to have that Savior who created humanity die a sacrificial death for that humanity so that our sins can be forgiven. We can be united to that God who will one day come back again and establish a kingdom forever. That strategy is ridiculous. 
But the truth is, it's going to work. And, it, and, and what I submit to you is it's, it's happening. So we don't feel this way in Western um, culture. White Christianity doesn't feel this way. We, in some ways, we feel kind of entrenched on or, or um, kind of at the gates. Like we feel like uh, attacked, so to speak. But the truth is global Christianity is exploding. There's never been a time in history where Christianity was growing faster than right now. South America, Africa, Asia, all three continents are literally exploding with gospel movements. So the, the prognostication is that Christianity will continue to grow rapidly like it's never done before for at least the next 50 years. and will be the dominant world um, religion for the foreseeable future. The reason that's happening is because that's the way it was always going to happen. So it is happening. The Great Commission is being accomplished. So let's finish with Revelation 7 right here. So this is uh, what John says about the end of the world, and one day we'll say this with him. John says, After this I looked up, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want to close with the idea that unity is in both inevitable and it's eternal. So we can either be a part of God's great work of unifying people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every color, every place, every corner of the earth, from every nation, or you can stand on the sidelines and reject your call to be a part of the greatest work in the history of the world. Because not only is it going to happen, the sovereign God of the universe has said it's going to happen, it's going to last forever. 10,000 years from now, we'll look at each other and we'll be unified and we'll be together because the sovereign king of the universe has established a course for history that ends in eternal unity around his name and his glory. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for today and all you've given us. We pray that you would help us uh, to put others before ourselves, to seek unity even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when it's difficult. Um, God, we pray that we would be the kind of people that you've called us to be. Thank you so much for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so that was excellent. Thank you. Um, and we are still recording. That was great. Your hand was so close to touching it so many times. I was like, he's going to turn off the recording. Uh, next week, we're going to jump into Mere Christianity. Uh, so perhaps the most popular Christian book that's not the Bible, maybe. Uh, maybe some checks on that. Maybe one of the best-selling. Um, and actually, a combination of three recordings that C.S. Lewis did uh, kind of around World War II. Um, and you've probably read it. Probably half of you have read Mere Christianity. So we're going to do seven weeks, maybe, it is, on, on Mere Christianity. And I'll be kicking us off with an introduction next week. Uh, so hopefully you'll tune in. All right, but thanks for listening this week.